You're listening to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. Listen in for news and insights on how Opportunity Zones, private equity funds, and private real estate can help you grow your wealth. Now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. I'm Jimmy Atkinson, and joining me on the show today is Ray Mazzi, Managing Partner at Southern Waters Capital. Ray, great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So, uh, Ray, you guys haven't done a ton of work in the Opportunity Zone space yet, but but still, I'm, I'm guessing that some of my audience of high net worth investors and advisors have probably heard of Southern Waters Capital at some point. Uh, but for those who may not be familiar with you and your firm yet, can you give us a brief introduction to your firm and what your role is there? Yeah, definitely. So I'll start with the, the firm first. Essentially, the simplest way to describe us is we're ground-up developers of rental housing, and we focus on built-to-rent, multifamily, and believe it or not, some manufactured housing as well. Um, and as far as my role, I'm the managing partner, as you mentioned. And really what that means is I'm just making sure everybody is doing their job. I mean, it's I, I wish I had a bunch of tangible technical skills. I really don't. I'm just looking out um, looking out for everybody, making sure a projects get it to the finish line. But uh, truly what I'm best at, I think, is finding the next opportunity, getting those opportunities entitled, and then raising the money to do such. Um, I've got a great team uh, below me who really handles all the technical work to make sure that everything I'm out there ensuring my investors will happen does happen. So it's my role to essentially play quarterback and, uh, and manager. That's great. And uh, speaking of finding opportunities, uh, I have to note for those who may not be watching us on YouTube, if you're if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or one of the other listening apps, Ray's joining me from his car today because it sounds yeah. like you're always on the road, Ray. Is yes. that right? So so tell me tell me where you're heading today and and w- tell me more about the approach behind always kind of being in your car. Seems like that's probably your office most of the time. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first off, I'm super blessed. My my late father actually was a truck driver for the greater part of my life and. Um, so the road is nothing new to me. Um, I just get to stay in nicer hotels now. <laughs> That's the big difference. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, a testament to my driving, I've put over 70,000 miles in my car in the last 12 months. Um, what I really do is I, I live on 95, I-75, I-4, Turnpike, and I-10. Um, those are my areas where I'm, I'm just always hunting for dirt, basically the main corridors of Florida. And today, I was lucky enough to come up uh, to Orlando Got to stay with my brother, free hotel room last night. So I uh, came to Orlando late last night from Fort Lauderdale. Today, I'll have some meetings around Orlando, meeting with some people who, who may want to invest in the opportunities on projects I'm sure we'll touch on later. And then after that, I'll head up to Jacksonville where I'm uh, doing some DD. I actually have some guys on site right now, but I'm doing some DD on a 24 um, single family home portfolio that we're, we're under contract on. So running around. And then after that, I get to uh, jet back down to, uh, to Fort Lauderdale. And if I'm lucky, I'll, I'll stop at a site visit along the way in Ocala, um, where we have a lot of work going on as well. And I think that's where your Opportunity Zone project is as well. We'll, we'll get to that a that little is. bit later in the show mm-hmm. today. Uh, you mentioned DD. I think you mean due diligence, not designated yeah. driving, um, but maybe a little bit <laughs> yeah. of both. Who knows? <laughs> uh, I do, sometimes I do have a designated driver, um, not because I've been drinking, but because I need to work. Yeah. Uh, I'm using an Uber if I've been drinking. Um, so no, my, my DD means due diligence. <laughs> all, all good stuff. I just wanted to uh, make sure there. Hey, uh, just, just t- tell me, let, let's talk about opportunity zones and your opportunity zone 
project that you're working on and raising capital for in a few minutes. But first, uh, just can you paint us the big picture of what Southern Waters Capital's investment strategy is, where you guys are focused, what types of properties you're investing in? Yeah, definitely. So we're a little different. We definitely go into deals a lot earlier than most people. Entitlement risk is something that we're well accustomed to, and it's how we drive value. The way I really simplify what I do is I arbitrage Main Street sellers with Wall Street buyers, uh, is the best way to say it. And um, really what I'm doing is finding below market rate land, uh, forcing appreciation through entitlement, bringing that to a JV or co-GP partner. Um, and then we take that asset from site plan ready to shovel ready, then take it to an LP. Once we take it to the LPs, we go vertical and stay in the deal. We either sell it CO, sell it stabilization or refi and stay in as long as my investors are, uh, are willing to stay along for the ride. So um, the major difference, like I said, is our entitlement risk uh, that we're accustomed to. Uh, we navigate that. You know, I'm a former attorney, so is my business partner, and we lucky enough to have a, a new new member of our team as well, who's a former UPenn Law grad. So we've got a lot of brain power, um, and we really just make sure that we mitigate risk along the way. But it drives so much value when you're willing to take on that type of um, uncertainty, as people would say. And in regard to what type of product we build, like I said earlier, it builds around. Can I, I'm really product agnostic is the best way to think about it. The best way to, that's why I said I'm a rental housing developer. Um, I've noticed that if I say one product, people start putting me in a box. I don't like to be put in a box. Um, so we're rental housing developers. I, I go to a site and I ask myself, you know, what best fits here? Is it single family detached? Is it single family attached? Is it low rise garden style? Is it high rise, multifamily? Um, you know, is it a manufactured housing community? What is it? Is it a combination thereof? Um, and really we're yield driven and opportunistic. So that uh, usually leads me to, honestly, not the major MSAs. I have no problem investing in major MSAs once prices come back down to earth. Um, but where they're at now, I think that it's really a, a game of people who need to place a lot of capital and who aren't really more yield driven. They're more, I don't want to say fee driven, but that's what it seems to be these days. Um, so anyway, with that being said, we're really ending up in like suburban and tertiary or secondary markets, however you want to refer to them. But essentially, what, what the old school guys used to call bedroom communities, stuff like that. So, meaning, uh, you know, we have assets in Cocoa, Florida. If you're familiar with Cocoa, we have assets in Wildwood, Florida, which is within the Villages MSA, uh, not too far from Orlando. And then we have assets in Ocala, Florida. And then, as I mentioned, we we may have some assets in Jacksonville here shortly. So that will be our first major MSA entrance, I would say. But at the same time, it's an operating asset, which is new for us. We don't really buy operating assets. Um, however, I don't want to yell that too loud because now we, we certainly have stepped into that arena considering the market cycle um, and the fact that there's a lot of sellers who are providing great financing and or great opportunities thanks to maybe a little bit of misjudgment on their financing situation a couple of years back. So um, with that being said, again, we're rental housing developers and now we're kind of stepping in to, uh, to operating assets and hopefully those operating assets allow us to enter those MSAs at a much more uh, favorable price and then maybe get a foothold and, and start to find more deals there. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Characterize where we are in the market cycle currently. Like where, where do you see us oh, geez. in right now? What, what stage of the market cycle are we? And can you talk a little bit more about how that has changed your approach or may continue to change your approach in the future? Yeah, I'll answer your, your questions in reverse order. Okay. Our, our approach has not changed at all. And I'm extremely proud of that. 
um, I listen and read Jim Collins and Ray Dalio and all these great minds and, and teachers. And, and at the end of the day, they always mention how your strategy needs to be fit for all market cycles, but at the same time, you got to hold the dichotomy of being able to be flexible. So when it comes, what I really mean by that is we've always bought dirt at below market value, period, full stop. We've always been able to force appreciation to honestly at or above market value. And we never use debt to buy our dirt. So I don't have some slow bleed going on. So at the end of the day, what really happened is they've, the market has slowed down the pipeline's development, but it hasn't tarnished it or ruined it or anything like that. You just have to have investors who are understanding and sophisticated. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I don't normally raise from high net worth individuals. It's usually family offices or, or private equity. I'm really excited to start talking to high net worth individuals. I think that you know they have a, a different perspective and, and a nice understanding and maybe just a different uh, you know, return parameter that that allows them to be a little bit more malleable as to the development and what can happen, which provides more optionality for me and my firm, which is really important, especially in a volatile market cycle like we're in now. So in short, haven't changed my strategy at all. Still buying land at a great value, still forcing appreciation through entitlements, um, still looking to stay in the deal and go vertical. I think the biggest difference is that it just might take a little bit longer, um, thanks to Mr. Powell and everybody else. Uh, but uh, and then in regards to like where we're at in the market cycle, uh, my business partner is a, a, an old bond daddy, as they call him. He's a, he's a bond nerd. So he um, has taught me, he's, we're all pessimistic. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you can't, you'll sure. never, I, I was like, I was writing some piece or talking to somebody about something. I was like, you know, it's funny. You barely ever see a bond trade above, not barely ever. You'll see bonds trade above par value, but you'll rarely see it pay trade above 10% of its par value, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that would be amazing. But you, you can find tons of bonds that are at 50% below their par value. So the bond guys are naturally pessimistic by their asymmetric, uh, their asymmetric return. But, um, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're not so pessimistic that we're not still chasing deals. I'm, not, I'm in the car right now looking for deals. Um, so what I'm getting at is it, I think we have like another, another year or so of potential rate hikes. I mean, I, I don't want to scare everybody, but at the end of the day, I need to remain super conservative. I think I ascribe to, uh, I think his name's Sean Rowles from, from UBS. I got to tip the hat to him. I read a lot of his stuff. And at the end of the day, I think, I, you know, I hate to make a prediction, but, but who cares? I'll do it. So I think the highest we'll end up at is six and a quarter on interest rates, which is super high. I think everything grinds to a halt at that. I was just in a meeting with my buddy, um, and he's sitting there, he's telling me, he's like, he's like, you know, well, I've done a historical look back. And I mean, the average cap rate, somewhere in the 10s, like you can have, he was going all the way back to the 70s and stuff. Yeah. And I looked at him, I was, like, I was like, Andre, that really distorts the picture. I was like, it really distorts the picture. I was like, I would probably only look back to the great financial crisis because that's the, the biggest time of, uh, of downturn in the new economy, if you will. Um, and look, I'm an economics degree from Florida State. I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm the smartest guy in the room. Um, so I just always make sure that what I do is is as conservative as possible. Um, and if I and if my if my deals still pencil over a ten year period um, at a in an interest rate environment where it's six or six and a quarter for a year and a year and a half, two years, whatever it is, um, then I'm okay. I'm going to keep moving forward. Um, so I think what it's really about is just being conservative, understanding that things can get worse, but also knowing that. 
you know, the odds of them going apocalyptic are pretty low. And if they do go apocalyptic, apocalyptic at that point, everybody's in, in the toilet, you know? <laughs> so I'm not trying to say, but that's how you should operate. But, you know, you can't be an entrepreneur. And as my late father used to say, you know, scared money doesn't make any money. So we do our best to uh, be careful, uh, but at the same time, be brave. Yes, as, as high as uh, interest rates are, are, are kind of creeping up now, you know, relative to the last 20 years or so, you look back to the, you know, you look back 40, 50 years to the 70s. Uh, we haven't quite gotten there yet, even. Uh, totally different yeah. ballgame. How interest rate sensitive are you guys with with how you're operating? You you mentioned you're not putting any debt on buying the dirt. You're doing debt on the construction costs and, and how has that yeah. impacted things? Yeah, returns would be trash if we didn't use debt on the construction. Um, and a quick note on that, you know, we may not be in the Volcker days, but we certainly ramped up faster than we ever had before. And it was funny when I was, before rate hikes were starting, um, I had a bunch of uh, older, smarter people telling me, you know, it's going to be a point, you know, the first rate hike is going to be a hundred basis points, it's going to be this, it's going to be that. And what do I know? I mean, I've seen low interest rates my whole life. I just turned 30 a couple of weeks ago. So, I mean, I don't even know, I don't even understand markets with high interest rates. Um, or I should say I haven't, under, I haven't experienced them. I definitely understand them. But my point is, is they were, you know, preaching to me about how it's going to, it's going to rise, going to do this. And I told them, I was like, guys, 50 basis points today is literally 2Xing the interest rate, essentially. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a huge, the first one I'm talking about, a huge jump. I was like, doing 100 basis points, I mean, everybody's going to stomp on the brakes and look around and go, what is happening here? Is this going to keep going on? Now, hindsight's twenty twenty. Maybe the Fed wishes they did do 100 basis points in the beginning and get everybody to stop and slow down. But um, I, Or if they had done it sooner, right? Some, uh, I mean, a lot of people think they waited too long. Well, I'll tell you this much. Hindsight's, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but you don't know when you've reached the point that it is twenty twenty. So um, we're talking about it today. We don't know. In a year, we may not say that. Um, I can say this: if it went up sooner and faster, I probably would have half the pipeline I have today. So mm -hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna say thank you always and take you know take the hand I'm dealt and um, and play it as best I can. I do my best never to get caught complaining about anything because there's there's always somebody in a worse off position. And my dad used to always say, you know, if you throw all your problems in the middle of the room with everybody else, I bet you'd go to the middle of the room and pick up your problems and walk back, <laughs> walk back to where you were. So, um, yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with what you said, but at the same time, I, I like to think I'm a little, uh, got a little bit of luck on my side too. Sure. Well, you can't always, uh, determine what happens externally, how, how the markets react, how, what the fed does, but you can, mm -hmm. uh, you, you can have an effect on, on how you react to it, right? How you react to it is, is all you can really control. Yeah. And Jim Collins always says in, in one of his books, I think it was like good to great or, or great by choice. I believe it was great by choice, but he always says it's like, it's what you do before the storm that determines how you'll weather it, not what you do, you know, during it. Um, of course you need to make the right decisions in both times, but um, you can make all the right decisions or go to make all the right decisions during the storm. But if you didn't prepare yourself and you don't have the tools at your disposal, you know, you're up, you're up, uh, you're up the stream with no paddle. Sure. So how, how have the increase in interest rates, the, the rate hikes impacted your construction financing? I mean, yeah, listen, we were looking at like four to 6% rates. I even saw life codes back in the day, looking at like back in the day, a year ago, <laughs> uh, <laughs> lo looking at like 
through, I mean, I never signed any agreements with this type of rate, but I literally saw LOIs, you know, in the high threes, mid threes for interest rates on construction. That is just nuts. Um, it's at, you know, nine, 10 now. Um, that's, <laughs> it's five, you know, it's three, four X. Um, it's a big deal, but when you think about it, really the construction period is the shortest period of the whole development, right? You're actually in and out of construction, hopefully between 18 and 24 months, depending upon what you're building. You could be in entitlements longer than that or just as long. And you certainly own the asset longer than that most of the time or whoever buys it does. Um, so my point is this, is you, you developers can certainly support higher interest rates. The issue is that... Um, it's when you go to refinance. Are you going to have a requisite interest rate for when you're going to refinance and stabilize this asset? If you don't have that, you're in trouble. So the answer is yes, things have gotten much more expensive. It's really about where am I exiting at though? And whether that's a refi, a sale or whatever it is, it's, it's where's the interest rates at that point? Um, so right now, everything that I'm doing, the yield on cost has definitely been squeezed. Um, the timelines have been delayed. But they're certainly still penciling. If you're like me, you look at the deal, you say, hey, if I have to hold it for 10 years, that's okay. It's still penciled. Um, I'll exit at the right point in the market cycle. Um, and like uh, I, I mentioned earlier before we jumped on here, was like, you know, it's my job to give my investors the returns they bargained for and do my best not to incur any inordinate risk getting there and certainly not incurring any inordinate risk to go past what they bargained for. So, um, at that point, really what I'm trying to say is if I look at my pro forma, I think my yield on cost is conservative. I think my underwriting is conservative. I think that I can hold the asset for 10 years. And I, and I think that I can come out of my construction into a stabilized asset at, at the right time. Then I'm going to move forward, um, even if it is a little bit more expensive right now. Because um, to me, having deals sit there is, is worse than anything. Um, not because they lose value or anything. But just the opportunity costs. You want to get your cash moving, and if you're like me and you have a lot of investors, they have preferred returns, and that I might as well be a slow bleed on you. Thankfully, it's not a, a current pay, but at the end of the day, their return is accruing, and it's preferred, so it's primary, senior to, to everybody else. So, um, yeah, it's affected the cost analysis. Obviously, it's affected the timeline, but um, thankfully, due to the way we approach deals, it it, it hasn't affected the overall success or the overall ability to to bring the pipeline to fruition it's just uh it's more difficult which is honestly an opportunity you know um, when people say that you know things are harder that's great usually when things get harder the the weaker players and the weaker deals fall to the wayside and now all of a sudden there's there's only the you know the um the cream of the crop left to to select from so i'm happy to say that you know, i'm proud to say that my team has put together over 1700 units of, of awesome assets that are still getting um, attention from family offices and private equity and high net worth individuals in today's market and yesterday's market. I'm pretty positive it'll be in tomorrow's market too. Great position to be in. You know, one aspect that you mentioned a little earlier that makes you somewhat unique is that you like taking on entitlement risk. I get emails calls all the time from different real estate developers that are trying to raise OZ equity or trying to get their projects in front of OZ fund managers. And then they always tout, hey, this thing's shovel ready. It's already through entitlement phase. And But you actually like taking on that risk. Is it, why why yeah. is that? Can you explain that approach? Yeah. I mean, I'm just getting a better cost basis, number one. Um, number two, I'm also designing what I want. I'm not being handed a sandbox and being 
given certain tools to to build a castle. I'm I create the I create the sandbox. I bring the tools. I tell people uh, what we can and cannot build. And if we can and cannot, if we can't build what I want to build, I'm out. And that's way better than in my opinion than getting stuck with some piece of shovel ready dirt. The reason investors like shovel ready dirt, and rightfully so. Um, is that they're, they don't have one, they don't have any of that risk, obviously, but it's the timing. They get to buy the dirt with the debt if they want to. They can use the bank's money to buy the dirt now. Um, everything's ready to go. Your, your actual exposure to the risk is shorter. So not only do you have a duration risk decrease, you also have a, um, a financing cost decrease because you're less time in the deal. You have an increased IRR because you're less time in the deal. Um, you just probably have a lower equity multiple because you probably paid more for the dirt. And for me, as an operator and a sponsor and a developer, what I care about is control. Number one is control of my asset, being able to do exactly what I want with it because it's me who has to go out and fight for the equity and tell people what we're going to do and, and make a bunch of promises. Um, so when it comes to shovel-ready dirt, one, I'm cheap. I don't want to buy shovel-ready dirt. <laughs> I think it's too expensive. I think it's a ripoff. Uh, I should say it's a ripoff because there's tons of great shovel ready deals out there. I shouldn't say that, but to me, it just feels that way. You there's there's I mean? a tr- there's a trade off. There's a risk yeah. turn trade off, and there's also a control trade off. Mm-hmm. And I want to be very clear: people who buy shovel ready dirt make tons of money. Let me not put out that out there that buying shovel ready dirt. I don't want to be known as some guy who doesn't like shovel ready dirt. I certainly do. It just I'm not willing to pay the the retail premium for that. I will. JV with shovel ready dirt. <laughs> I won't, I do not want to buy it from somebody. Understood. Well, let's talk about opportunity zones now. Uh, well, let me, let's start here. Actually, what got you interested in opportunity zones? You Southern waters capital has been, uh, doing real estate deals for, for last several years, but you're just starting to get into opportunity zones. Now, if, if I understand correctly, tell me about why you are interested in doing some opportunities on deals now. Yeah. Well, as a you know former attorney and all that, I've, I've always been interested and really the only two classes I was good at in law school were tax and real estate. So I've always been interested. Um, you know, it's a 1031 exchange on steroids. It's really what it is. And it's awesome. Um, the reason we haven't gotten into it right away um, was just because we never let the tax tail wag the dog. That's rule number one when you're taking a law school class in tax. You go, Don't let the tax tail wag the dog. And by the way, dollars deferred or dollars saved. Those are the two rules I'll never forget um, from tax class. Um, and anyway, the reason, we, the reason we're looking at it now is one, it's motivated capital. Number one, it's motivated. Number two, you, um, you know, it's, it, you know it, it, it's kind of the same thing. It's motivated. It has to be placed. And, and you just, it's really easy to understand what the investor wants. So aside from being motivated, it's a very a cookie cutter type of um, cookie cutter type of raise, and you know if you fit some investors' um, buy box and they're motivated, they're, they're, it's pretty likely it's going to go through. And in a market like today, really to make deals pencil, you need to hold them. So having a QOZ factor where people basically want to stay in the deal for ten years, it now like that whole argument of or not argument that whole discussion with the investor who isn't qualified opportunity zone or, or qualified opportunity fund investor, I should say. Um, that whole conversation about, hey, we're going to stay in the deal for 10 years. It's not a big deal anymore. They're like, okay, it's that's what I expected. Whereas with the usual investor, they're like, hey, I want out in three to five years, um, especially for ground up development. So 
Um, really, it's a market cycle thing. And then since I don't let the tax go like the dog, I wait until the opportunity is is there and it makes sense. And this one is a public-private partnership that I'm doing um, with the city of Ocala. I'm very um, close with them. And you know, not everything is... Um, not everything is completely settled yet. Uh, so let me be clear on that. We have a, we have a lot of things in place. There's about one more trigger we got to get done, but the project's been awarded to us um, and we'll be taking down the land hopefully here in the next 60 days. But um, it's essentially 56 units on top of 20,000 square feet of commercial surface parts. We're getting a little bit over $2.2 million incentives. Um, six-year tax abatement and no land use restriction agreement, which is huge for anybody who knows what it's like to fight for a tax abatement. Um, usually it comes along with a LURA, as they call it, the land use restriction agreement. But I don't have any of that, so I'm very happy about that. It's adjacent to an awesome historic building that's being redeveloped into a hotel by a friend of mine who's done boutique hotels in Europe and South America. It'll be cool. We're hoping to put his restaurant in our retail and have some nice connectivity um, across the street to each other. Um, we'll have a little rooftop terrace, fully amenitized, all that kind of fun stuff. So um, it's interesting. And it's in downtown Ocala, which, um, you know, certainly not uh, certainly not LA, New York, or Miami, but um, it's well-trafficked. I can say that uh, I brought my team there for a big closing about a year ago, and we were able to do a bar crawl without having to get into a car until we needed to go back to the World Equestrian Center, which is a beautiful billion-dollar um, horse and equine facility um, over there in Ocala. It's, it's unreal. So anyway, the project's super sweet. It's going to be fun. And uh, the city's all, all behind it. And we're going to hopefully transform the midtown area of Ocala, which is pretty exciting. Really good. Really good. Yeah. It's the, uh, I think it's like the horse capital of the, uh, of the state of Florida, at least, right? Ocala. Oh, it's set. It's definitely the horse capital of the world if you look at the trademark website. Horse capital of the world, okay. <laughs> yeah, so let me get that straight before anybody takes shots at me. Good, next time I, go I, I, stand, I stand corrected. Uh, <laughs> one thing you said uh, that I found really interesting was I think you were trying to imply that uh, opportunity zones should be more valuable to investors given where we are in the market cycle right now. And yet, if you look at equity raising activity for opportunity zone funds, we've actually suffered a downturn recently. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably in, due in part to the fact that the markets are down, economic uncertainty is- I think I know. And, and, and yeah. there's fewer capital gains to place, but, but how do you reconcile that? Well, I would say this, I think it's also down because like the 2026 um, horizon that's coming up. Yeah, that's true. The, but, we're getting closer to that deferral date. Yeah, there's just not. So a lot of the things when I'm talking to investors are like, so I'm only deferring for three years or whatever. Right. right. And I'm like, well, yeah, you can think about it that way. Or you could look at the, if we stay in for 10 years, you're not paying any capital gains and any appreciation from the QOZB. Um, so I think one thing is that 2026 sunshine or horizon, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess my my reasoning for saying that it's still motivated is the fact that if the capital is in a QOF, it needs to be placed. It right. still has. Uh, so I think what you're seeing is a downturn in investments to QOFs. Correct. I'm, yeah. So I would agree. Um, but I'll say this. If your QOF has money in it, it needs to be moved. So um, the flow from the QOFs to the QOZBs is different. So I'm not raising a QOF. I want to be clear. Um, I allow my investors to have their own QOFs um, and I go to separate QOFs. I set up a compliant QOZB 
Um, I make sure that everything stays in order um, and that their QFs can invest in them. Um, if I wanted to go do a bunch of projects and all that, um, I would raise a QOF. But like you said, at this time, that's really not the most motivating thing. So instead, I was like, hey, let's do a QOZB. Honestly, it's a little less money to the attorneys, which is always fun to yep. do. Um, yep. And you can um, you can raise that capital through their QOFs. And then you're not like doing this double tron- this double layer BS where the investor's like, I'm in two QOFs and a QOZB. They have no idea what's going on at that point. I It gets confusing to me. Every time you got to look at the org chart, you're like, all right, who am I dealing with here? Um, but <laughs> but um, no, it's... Uh, it, it, it's kind of it's nuanced, but yeah, I think I think we're both right. Um, it's not flowing into the QFs as much, but it's certainly flowing out of them. No, totally understood. Yeah, I think there's um, there's a couple of points along the flow of uh, equity where the where the capital is motivated. One at the time where the investor realizes a capital gain, he or she has 180 days to put it into a QOF. Oftentimes, they'll find a third party QOF to write a check to, and they're just an LP. But sometimes, uh, you know, if you're high net worth enough, if, if the capital gains large enough, you'll set up your own self-directed QOF. So that yeah. buys you a little bit more time. But even then, now you've got, you know, the, t- the clock is ticking depending on mm-hmm. when you made the investment. You typically have about six months Another or so. Another 180 days, right? I think it's, a, it's, I think at that point, once it's at the QOF level, it's Another roughly six months, give or take. It kind of depends yeah. on when your asset test is. Um, gotcha. I don't want to get too technical, but it's it's yeah. roughly six months. Basically, you have to this then deploy the capital <laughs> into a QOCB. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some of this stuff is above uh, our pay grade, but um, but we'll we'll certainly. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it gets it does um, get pretty technical pretty quick. But your point is well taken. The capital in the QOF is highly motivated to move quickly because it has to in order to stay compliant with the QOF regulations. Absolutely, Ray. Absolutely. And then I believe if I'm correct, the QOZB has like 30 plus months to move the capital. So yeah, the QOZB uh, is then subject to a working capital safe harbor written plan, which could buy them an extra, I think, I think you're right. I think it's 29 months, 30 months, 31 months. There's a few different tests and I get them confused, but it's something in, in that ballpark. That's right. Yep. Yep. So yeah, it's pretty motivating. If you only have 180 days, then you almost get like two and a half years. You're like, yeah, take my money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly um, right. So yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much it in a nutshell. And, and we ended up there, like I said, because it was a unique opportunity through the city. Um, we're getting the land at a bang up price. Um, they're fully behind it. And uh, yeah, we're it's, it's not a huge project. It's only $20 million total capitalization, which to me is very, very small. Um, usually we're $80 million or more. Um, so yeah, so this project is something where it, it's, it's still very juicy. Um, and in today's market, um, I'm happy we have it because it's something that is still, you know, when you put a 10 year time horizon on it, it looks amazing. Um, if you put a three year time horizon on it, it'd probably be really tough, probably really tough to do. Um, but yeah, so it's our first mixed use project. It's the first time we're doing a QOZ. Um, and we're super excited about it. Good. Has your investment thesis changed at all, given that it's an OZ or are you still, is it, does it fit in with exactly what you've always done? Well, like I said earlier, right. We always hold, we always make sure we can hold the baby for 10 years. So this is just saying that we're going to this time. Um, so I'll say that my analysis is the same. My exit assumptions are different. Um, and my exit you know, timeline is different, but on um, the original underwriting is right where it was original, uh, right where it was in the beginning. 
you always prepare to hold the baby for at least a decade. But if an opportunity comes along to exit after three to five years, if you've already hit your returns, you take advantage of that exit opportunity. Whereas with the QOF, the QOZB fund uh, deal, excuse me, mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you're, you're, you don't really have an exit on the table. I mean, unless it's an incredible uh, offer after three to five yeah. years, you're going to hold for 10. Plus. Yeah, exactly. And the idea with this one is there's a there's another city block that I have my eye on that could be the phase two. So if we refi the right way, you roll that capital right in the next one. And now you're recycling your investors' money twice and getting them in two deals, which is always fun. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it's uh, it's funny. I can't believe uh, I just turned 30 a couple weeks ago. So I can't believe I'll be 40 years old and this thing's supposed to be sold. That's like kind of wild to think about. <laughs> but yeah, well... Hey, you'll, you'll, you'll get there eventually. And happy birthday. Uh, what? So you're, you're $20 million total capitalization on the Ocala project. Uh, how much equity are you raising? How much left do you have to raise? Yeah. So in this world today... I'm just thinking about if yeah, we have doing, any listeners yeah, or viewers 60, who have QOFs and, and they're interested. Of course. Yeah. We're doing 65% leverage. We're putting in a little bit over a million bucks. So we're raising anywhere from... call it Just call it 6 million bucks to be, to be safe. Sure. Um, we've got a, we've got a couple million committed. Um, it's, so yeah, I think we've got about four or so that I could use. So 250 grand minimum if anybody's out there listening, but, uh, we're happy to, we're happy to talk to anybody. We haven't even gone out to QOS yet or anything like that. I haven't called any of them. I've only dealt with some friends and family who have thrown in some cash. So, um, we're going to go out to market pretty hard here in the next probably 30 days or so, 30, 60 days. But um, nah, looking for four million bucks. Whoever's got it, come, give me a ring. Sounds sounds very doable. I wish you luck, uh, Ray. This has been really fascinating um, talking with you, and I really appreciate all the opportunity zone insights yeah. you've given, and then just the general real estate insights that you've given. Uh, you know, I consider you guys one of the leaders in the in the real estate development industry, especially down there in the region where you're developing in, in Florida. Uh, mm -hmm. Given that, what are some of the trends that you see playing out over the next few years across the broader private equity real estate industry? So, I mean, trends, I'll tell you what, I hope, and because I can't guarantee anything, I really do hope prices come back in line. Dirt is really the only lever you have. It's the only part of the deal. You know, construction pricing is construction pricing. Don't get me wrong. You can take out sub tiers and not as have as many subs and you can self-perform and you can have your own property management and find all those cost savings. But really the biggest difference in every deal is the price of the dirt. So I'm hoping that price of the dirt comes back down um, or at the very least sellers find unique ways to, uh, to make high prices of dirt make sense. I think that's going to happen. In fact, I'm seeing it already. Um, so I know that, that sellers are going to come back to earth eventually. What really worries me is net migration, and it's a good thing. It's a double-edged sword. I'm in Florida. Net migration is certainly a positive, but net migration is why land prices don't adjust as quickly as they should. And a shortage of supply in the housing um, sector is certainly prevalent. And it's just like anything else. It's people rushing through the door, right? It's through the same door. It's, that's what keeps prices up. It's concentrated demand. Concentrated demand leads to inflated prices that are outside of what I believe market equilibrium should be at. Um, and right now, I think private equity firms are smart. 
are going to wait. I think private equity firms who base their stuff, base their uh, lives off fees, they're going to spend money. Um, so uh, with that being said, I really, I prefer dealing with the family offices anyway. They're a little bit more patient, a little bit more understanding, and especially the family offices that are really development, multi-generational development shops. Um, sure. You know, I'm lucky enough and blessed to, to be partnered with the Matwani family on a deal um, in Ocala, that'll be a 360 unit multifamily asset, you know, 300 units of multi 60 units of townhome. And, um, you know, Merrimack Ventures is the name of the firm and they're happy. They're, they're long-term thinkers and they know um, and understand value very well. And aside from that, and most importantly, they're consummate gentlemen and, and a well-respected family in the real estate development world. They're leading um, Miami World Center um, development, the 27 acre, uh, downtown Miami development with the Falcone group. They're intelligent. I mean, they're not only a partner to us They're uh, to be frank, they're a mentor as well. Um, and it's groups like that that are so awesome to partner with because they bring something to the table that you don't have. Um, it's the experience and just the, the patience and of course the balance sheet support. And then past that, you have somebody, if you do right by people like that, usually they're there for you in other times. So, um, that's kind of what, uh, kind of the partners we look for and the groups that I really focus on. So in regard to private equity and everything, you know, they're all over the place, depending upon their mandate. They're, that's the problem with most of these equity firms. They have these specific mandates and they we're doing a mixed product, um, which is my favorite. It's where you get the highest yield. And I think you get to hold on to the most tenant base and everything like that, drive a lot of, drive a lot of value. Um, most private equity firms won't allow that because they're like, sorry, we're multifamily only or sorry, we're build to rent only or whatever because <clears throat> that's their mandate. Whereas a family office will go, look, it's their units. These are tenants. There's not all the tenant demographic is pretty closely aligned. And um, we think that this is a great product and you got the dirt at a great basis. And if you let us in below market value, but above what you bought it at, we're still happy. And um, that's how we've been cutting deals. So it's a long way of saying that private equity based on fees will still spend money. Private equity um, stuck in mandates that isn't really fee driven will probably be patient. And family offices that are opportunistic are out there buying right now. And those are the people that I'm talking to. All, all great thoughts, Ray. Hey, thanks so much for sharing your insights today. Uh, before we go, if any of our audience of high net worth investors, family offices, advisors want to learn more about you and, and your deals at Southern Waters Capital, where can they go to find out more information? Yeah, people think I'm crazy, but if you go on my LinkedIn, I literally have my cell phone number there and my email. So it's ray at southernwaterscapital.com. I will not repeat my cell phone. You guys can go find that on LinkedIn. Um, and if you abuse it, I will block you. Um, and one thing I would like to mention that I always like to plug <clears throat> is we we helped found a charity. My, my business partner, Dean Myro, helped found a charity and I'm blessed enough to be a founding member on the board and everything like that. He he certainly gets the credit though for starting it. Um, it's called the Friendship Circle Cafe. It's on Las Olas. It's, it's literally, uh, it's teamed up with the Friendship Circle, which is essentially, um, it's a charity that allows or that helps those with developmental disabilities reach their highest and best um, capabilities in the workplace. So not a lot of those individuals get the ability to, to work and earn a living wage. Um, we have started a cafe that they operate. And I mean, my hand to God, I can't believe it. It, it actually, it is profitable. So um, it's really cool. And it's a not-for-profit, but, but it does drive a profit, which obviously goes back to the, 
the individuals within the charity. But most importantly, we're going to have our second annual Friendship Circle Charity Classic, uh, which is a golf tournament. And I know not everybody's going to, be, not everybody will be able to come down to beautiful South Florida and play. But um, any types of donations, you guys can go to Friendship um, Circle Charity And last year we raised just over one hundred thousand dollars, which we're super proud of, and um, we'd love to exceed that this year. So as much as I want the QOZ money. You know, I, I can get that anywhere. I'd really prefer if people went to um, went to friendshipcirclecharityclassic.com and made a donation whenever they can. Okay, awesome, Ray. We'll make sure to link to Friendship Circle Charity and we'll also link to your LinkedIn and we'll have your email awesome. address and maybe your phone number on our show notes page also. Yeah, you can find those works. show notes as always at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And please be sure to also subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listing platform to always get the latest episodes. Ray, this has been great. Thanks again so much for joining me today. Pleasure's mine. Thank you, Jimmy. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.